that I think is the biggest thing when people get interested in mushrooms, especially people that like just come from foraging, you know, where they love eating mushrooms, finding mushrooms in the wild, you kind of get high from it because you're like hunter gatherer, DNA activating, whatever. Then you learn about like the science of like, oh wait, this is like an apple. This mushroom I'm finding is like an apple. The actual vegetative structure is underground and that part of the organism is like infinitely complex. You're listening to the Dude Nature Podcast. What's up, everyone? It's Noah with the Dude Nature Podcast. Today, we have an awesome guest. Darren is the co-host of the Mushroom Hour podcast and owner of the really cool Instagram, welcome underscore to underscore mushroom underscore hour. So welcome to Mushroom Hour with underscores in between. Um, he posts really sick pics of him foraging for mushrooms in Marin County, California. Um, it's a great follow. So give that a follow and also check out his podcast. He knows a ton about all the different topics of mushrooms. And so in this episode, we talk about how to grow mushrooms correctly crazy traits of mycelium, psilocybin being corporatized, and the best hikes in the Bay Area. And Darren, again, is super knowledgeable about mushrooms, so it was really fun talking with him. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's my talk with Darren. Who's your uh, Who's your favorite person that you've spoken to? Or like the favorite thing that you've learned from your podcast? You have so many people, so many mushroom people you've spoken to. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's impossible. Um, usually I, I just talk about the most recent. So, you know, we've released... 73 episodes about to release 74 uh, in just about a year and i've got about 35 or 40 unreleased so we've been you know my my wife kind of lines up i always have to give so much credit to shakti my other half who like films every mushroom hour video you see when it comes to the podcast she's the one organizing the guests scheduling everything i just kind of like show up um so yeah, so most recently, that's what I'll do because I can't possibly pick a favorite. You know, I spoke with a guy, Doug Beerend, who just wrote a book, In Search of Mycotopia. And for anyone who's listening who's like just getting into mushrooms or just getting interested, yeah, awesome Perfect. book to start with because it dives into not only some of the basics of like mushroom biology and the science behind mushrooms and all this stuff we hear bits and pieces of that get us excited, like what? Sucking up oil spills? What? Making clothes or houses or, you know, all that really cool almost science fiction stuff. He kind of gives you that and then intertwines it with this narrative about really influential people in the mycological community, including a lot of people I've interviewed for the show, but you get like a, a snapshot of not only why mushrooms are so cool, but why the community around it is so cool. And I think in a lot of people I talk to, that's one of the biggest gifts they've gotten. It's a question I ask is like, what has Fungi given you? And they always say like connection with these awesome people, community, like for whatever reason, mushrooms as these enigmatic organisms that are like mysteries to biology, draw in eccentric and interesting people. Yeah. Um, for sure. So, so I would have to say that that book and that interview with like this writer who's super thoughtful and done a lot of thinking and just spent time and space with a lot of these influential other mushroom people was really awesome. And I think it, it kind of birthed some cool perspectives, but yeah, there's like so many amazing people I've talked to. And I think to group it, it's kind of like academics. So academic mycologists, 
Right. Yeah. Guys at universities studying biodiversity and really trying to like catalog and codify what are these organisms? Like basic questions. How many are there? Why are they where they are? Why do they do what they do? And then you have like citizen scientists, kind of people doing like cutting edge gene sequencing in bathtubs and like kind of crazy mad scientist stuff. And then you have wild foragers, which is kind of where I most resonate. It's like people go out and pick wild mushrooms for fun to eat and all that kind of stuff. And then people who are using it as like, material science and kind of novel uses of fungi, like engineers and things who are using mycelium and mushrooms, not for food, not for any traditional use, but to make, yeah, like buildings, lights, coffins, whatever. Uh, so yeah, I know, I know that answer was like totally a dodge and just gave you an overview of everything, but no, that was the answer. That, that was great. I'll, I'll, we'll include a link to that too. Cause I think that one of the problems is that yeah, there's so much out there. It's it's kind of hard to get into. So like me and me and Adam, we tried to we tried to grow mushrooms recently, mm. and it was it went horribly wrong. <laughs> <I'm> just like <laughs> it, it went it went so wrong. Like we got I think we got like we ended up getting like ten mushrooms or something, and we were you know it was supposed to be like a like a carton full. Right. So like. <laughs> To, to start off grow like growing mushrooms is there like a an what's like the easiest way if you want the, for like a just novice so like the novice I, I call it the lazy way but it's the way I really love is perfect finding a good source of pre-made blocks because uh, you know when you we talk okay. about growing mushrooms there's stages to that right there's like the petri dish or syringe full of the actual culture or the mycelium that's kind of like your right. starter and then you have to make food for that thing to grow on and be happy on. So you're taking this mycelium out of a Petri dish or out of a syringe and putting it onto a bulk substrate. And usually that's a special mixture of sawdust, maybe some gypsum, uh, which is like a building material that has calcium in it. And different people have their different mixtures for like, here's what this mycelium, again, this is before it's a mushroom, just the fungal mycelium, that root structure underground wants to eat. And so you have to like make a bag or a block that has what it wants to eat. And sometimes that's like grain jars, right? You've probably seen grain jars where you put the mycelium in there, let it take over the grain jar. And that's like your bulk substrate. And then you have to expand that out onto like a fruiting substrate, which is a slightly different mixture that again is food for that mycelium, but encourages it to put up mushroom fruit bodies. Cause that's what we want. Is that reproductive? Yeah. That's what, that's what we're waiting is for. Is that reproductive? That's what we're doing all the hard work for. So I like to cut out a lot of those steps and just get basically a fruiting substrate that's already fully colonized, ready to pop mushrooms. And there's a lot of that's yeah, yeah. there's a lot of vendors now popping up doing that. And so that's why I say it's the lazy way. But it's also like if you want to surefire, just like grow mushrooms, it will definitely be cheaper still than buying mushrooms in the store. You'll get a feel for the fruiting process, which can be one of the trickiest processes, which in your guys experience, you might have seen little like pinheads form. And you're like, what do I do next? Is this okay? Yeah. And then we like freak out. We're like, what's going on? It has a weird color. Is that bad? Should we throw it out? Exactly. So <laughs> what do we so do? Just learning like there's enough to learn just within like the vagaries of that whole fruiting process that I like to start there. So you can either do it with a vendor, like all these different people now online sell mushroom blocks. They usually have a great strain of oyster mushroom or shiitake or whatever mushroom you want to grow already picked out. It's already on the right food. And then all you have to do is put it in the right environment, which a lot of times just leave it indoors, have a little spray water can next to it, uh, cut some holes in this little bag, spray it down, and it'll fruit mushrooms. Or what I like to do is find a local mushroom farm if you know one near you, because a lot of commercial mushroom farms will do that whole process 
And then, or sometimes not, sometimes they'll just buy, like what I just said, those buy the final blocks and they just have a big warehouse that's good for fruiting them. Um, but either way, they'll usually only fruit that final block one or two times to get grocery store viable product. And then they throw it out. Yeah. So if you go and talk someone's ear off or get some kind of, sometimes you can just call and they're like, oh, you want the old blocks? Like, yeah, take them. Oh, that's genius. Yeah, because you, you can get the blocks. You can cop the blocks. You can just cop the, they're used once or twice. <laughs> but if you like dunk them in water or like here in California, yeah. if you leave them out in the wintertime when it's raining, they'll get dumped on with water and they'll fruit more mushrooms out of that. You can get like some more life out of those. So I think like either one of those is some of the, is probably the best, best way for people to start. And then if people want to dive into like, oh, well, I want to get a Petri dish with some cool strain of shiitake that I want to grow, culture it out and do the whole thing. Awesome. But if you just want to like get your feet wet and learn about fruiting and have some mushrooms, you know, and not go the Noah and Adam route and like get 10 and <laughs> and ruin like know what's going ruin on. a bunch of plastic containers and exactly. get your fiance mad at you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, let's, that guy's let's avoid that side. Yeah. And you can just start with the blocks. Yeah. Perfect. And, and what you're talking about is those pre-made blocks. And then you can get just a syringe of spores of any kind of spore, really. Yeah. Well, so a lot of times when I'm talking about the blocks, I'm talking it's already been inoculated. So they've already gone through that process. Oh, already been inoculated. That's even better. Yeah, so like... What is wrong with well, us? So the, so the process... <laughs> well, but like a lot of people like that process of, yeah, making... Like getting a spore syringe that has your mycelial spores in it ready to like form a mycelium once they combine. And you take that and put it on like sawdust or whatever onto that bulk substrate. And then you have to take that bulk substrate onto another surface or onto another uh, food source that's good for fruiting. So I'm saying you cut out those first two steps and just get the block right. with the fruiting substrate already inoculated, like pure white covered in mycelium, just ready to get some moisture and fruit some mushrooms. Yeah. And for, for people out there, basically like what me and Adam did. So it's like you can make spaghetti with pre-made pasta sauce. Right. What me and Adam decided to do is to try and make the pasta sauce. To then make the spaghetti, to then make the spaghetti, which that was so stupid. well, it could be an awesome experience, right? Like starting with fresh tomatoes. It was cool, yeah. It's, it's a fun experience. So some people just love that process, and then there's like whole segments everywhere in between. Like there are some people that just live in that space of like finding an awesome mushroom in the wild. They culture it, put it on a petri dish, or put it in a syringe, and then they fruit it out and see like what it looks like. So they do that that process once, but then they're more interested in like what unique genetics is this making? Oh wow, that's a really cool strain. I can like capture yeah, it's cool. a chunk of that flesh and like keep that specific mushroom. Or if I see potential in this strain, I can capture spores from the mushroom I grow on a spore print and then put that back in a syringe. And basically when you bring it back to like the spore level of reproduction, instead of cutting a piece out of a mushroom and expanding it on Petri. That's kind of like cloning. I think we've all heard that term in like different forms. Yeah, so yeah. like cloning, or you can like take the spores and that gives you an opportunity to like have a fresh genetic mixture that might do something a little different. That's so cool. So then you can like dive into like your specific strain and kind of mess with it. Yeah. That's so tough. I want to get to that level so bad. First, I think I need to successfully just grow a mushroom. <laughs> usually you walk through that. <laughs> yeah, usually walk through that process. There. A really cool account to follow on Instagram. I mean, he's all over the place. Uh, Ryan Paul Gates. The name of the account is Terrestrial Fungi. And he is like cool. a master. I mean, there's a lot of people doing it, but he's like a master with like cordyceps and reishi, which are some of the coolest mushrooms to look at. And he gets really into like isolating genetics and yeah, just living in that whole world of like 
that's so isolating funny. the best strain that looks cool or that like makes the most or whatever and then people kind of take it from there and run with it so you can really like the really cool part about it is like you can really be have your own field laboratory at your house yeah you can really be like a mushroom scientist and like mess with the genetics of it i didn't realize that. that's super cool yeah yeah it's it's you know the investment required just to get started is not super high then people like get into it and then they want to make clean rooms in their house and set up like crazy HEPA filters and all this like flow hoods, you know, where you have clean air blowing. So you have this clean workspace. Now you guys may have like cleaned out your bathroom really clean. Like you can start there. You can like scrub down your <laughs> yeah. bathroom with bleach and water mixture. And then it's like, that's a pretty clean space to start working with mycelium. But dude, I thought it was super cool too. I know this is dumb, but like, because I, I really didn't know anything about mushrooms. So it was, it's really cool when you first, for people out there, when you first, you stick the syringe like in the jars that we did right. and you, you inoculate it basically the mycelium, which is the white part, it takes up all the substrate. And then once you let that white part into the air, it'll then fruit, the, the mushroom comes off of that. So really you're like, the main creature is this mycelium. I just don't think, I didn't like realize that until I grew it. And that was really cool. I felt like that was the biggest thing I learned, I think. That I think is the biggest thing when people get interested in mushrooms, especially people that like just come from foraging, you know, where they love eating mushrooms, finding mushrooms in the wild. You kind of get right. high from it because you're like hunter gatherer, DNA activating, whatever. Mm -hmm. Then you learn about like the science of like, oh, wait, this is like an apple. This mushroom I'm finding is like an apple. Right. The actual vegetative structure is underground. And that part of the organism is like infinitely complex. That's the stuff that like blows your mind yeah. of like, why does that white? kind of root material like why does it even uh i had a podcast where i interviewed lynn body from wales and for the past like 40 years she's been studying mycelium and my, what's called mycelium network architecture and like why it grows how it does why it decides when you when you injected your syringe into your substrate and it starts growing a mycelium why does it pick a direction that it does or why does it go like equidistant from the center yeah. like how is it communicating because like if one part of the mycelium can't find food or there's like some disturbance it'll like signal to all the rest of the mycelium like hey don't grow this direction like how's that possible so that's the kind of stuff that's which is so like so crazy like what is going on with this thing <laughs> yeah mind blown yeah. yeah and for people that don't know mycelium it looks like a bunch of really thin white vines almost that take up a substrate and then one thing you think about too is like when i was growing it then you're like okay so the mushrooms grow out in the wild you're like so underneath the soil is this just, are we just like, are we just standing on like a, just, just, you know, like a sea of mycelium? Is this the great Pacific sea of mycelium that, that we're standing I on? mean, it absolutely is. And that is like one of the things that I think, again, makes people's head explode. So I mean, you realize like how ubiquitous mycelium is in a woodland environment, but any environment, like in deserts, now they're finding a marine fungi that are growing literally underwater. So like that mycelial organism is when you think about it, it's just so versatile, right? As an evolved organism in terms of like how it can adapt, it can make, this is one of the most unique things about mycelium is the food it can eat. So like when we talk about wood in general, like a woody substrate, that's a super complex, really tight carbon molecule, like a lignin, super tight carbon molecules, really hard to break down. But fungal mycelium over millennia, millions of years has evolved to create ligninolytic enzymes that actually can get in there and break apart these tight, tight carbon chains. But not only that, 
they're also producing what's called a co-substrate, which is like this little alcohol that it needs to like kind of, as far as I understand it, again, I'm a layman. I'm like parroting the words of Leif Olson, who uh, is an interview coming out soon. He's a great bioremediation, microremediation expert. So they're putting out this little alcohol that like helps that wooden carbon ring break just a little bit to then where the lignolytic enzyme can get in there. And the whole time it's having to like make a pH stream because that enzyme won't work in a certain pH, but the mushroom can't survive in the pH where that enzyme goes to work. So it has to like spit out these molecules that can make a pH gradient from what it's trying to decompose to itself. Like, and I know that kind of sounds, I mean, it is really complicated. And to think this little white tendrily organism yeah. is doing all that all the time at every outer tip of its roots that process just like so, going on like quadrillion amounts of times it's just like it's so crazy to think about yeah. i know that's that's what i was thinking about now when i walk in the woods i'm just like i'm just stepping on i see it's like everything is kind of you realize it's like the building block yeah. for stuff that mycelium is the building block for like a lot of life i mean um it's crazy when i interviewed uh tom bruns who's right here at uc berkeley i think he just retired uh, he's like one of the biggest mycorrhizal experts in the world. And mycorrhizal mushrooms are what you're talking about, or mycorrhizal fungi are those mushrooms that connect all the trees. You know, we're hearing about the internet of the forest and how all these trees are talking to each other. And that all happens through fungal right. mycelium networks. And he says that like hundreds of millions of years ago, when plants, like when algae left the ocean and became land plants, it couldn't do it without fungi. So ever since then, they've been intimately symbiotic because what the mycelium is doing, so I talked about like how it breaks down kind of dead wood and all that. But when we talk about the forest, when it's connecting different trees together, you know, it's basically acting as like a, I call it like a prosthetic root system that's way bigger, way finer. So the roots are way smaller. Right. And they're actually able to get into like literal rocks and break apart magnesium and different minerals that the tree would need. They're able to soak up just because they have so much more surface area, way more water and bring it to the tree. And in exchange, the tree is taking any excess photosynthetic sugars and feeding it down those roots to that mushroom. So yeah, give me those, you know, minerals, give me that water. I'll give you these sugars to keep you happy. And that's just going on in every forest all the time. 95% of all land plants are connected via mycorrhizal networks. No, I, that's insane. Yeah, so it's it's the net it's the network. It's the internet it's basically. The, it's the internet it's of the, the world. I mean even grasses. Like so there's ectomycorrhizal and endomycorrhizal are like the general big groupings. Ectomycorrhizal connect a lot of like the big temperate trees that we have here in North America. So like big pine forests in Marin County, for example, have very specific ectomycorrhizal fungi all over the place. And a lot of the ectomycorrhizal are some of our like favorite mushrooms to forage, like porcini or Boletus edulis, the big brown mushrooms that everyone loves to eat. Uh, but like slippery jacks, Amanita muscaria is a uh, ectomycorrhizal mushroom. Whereas endomycorrhizal might not make their presence known, like they might not even make a fruit body, but they connect things like grass. Like we don't think of what grass has. Yes, grass needs fungi connected to its roots to survive. And like tropical plants, those are all kind of like endomycorrhizal fungi. So when you look at those two worlds, it's, yeah, it's mind blowing to see how they are the glue to all those ecosystems. For sure. It's crazy. Dude, outside of my outside of my mom's apartment complex, she lives in, uh, in Mill Valley. Nice. There was, there was a huge, by the trash cans, there was a huge uh, like red mushroom with white 
specs on it. I think it might have been a hallucinogenic mushroom. I'm I'm not sure. Obviously, like I suck at identifying them. But it was just funny because it's like this apartment with like very Marin's like very rich, very rich older people with this <laughs> massive hallucinogenic, massive hallucinogenic mushroom just growing right by their trash can. It was so funny. So if I'm hearing you right, you saw like the Mario mushroom, right? Ex- that's exactly right. It was the Mario so mushroom. So that likely Amanita muscaria, probably the most infamous mushroom in the world in terms of iconography and history and mythology now that's been built up around it. Yeah. Because it occurs on every continent except Antarctica. You can find Amanita muscaria. It's spread everywhere. Spread everywhere. Different hosts, generally like in North America, it'll be associated with pine trees or conifers like spruce or pine. Or uh, So yeah, Marin County happens to be like a great place for Amanita because we have a lot of coastal pines. We have a lot of good environment for it. Um, but that's a mushroom that it's funny because that's a mushroom that some people consider poisonous. Some people consider like psychedelic, hallucinogenic, not the same. Like it's not a tryptamine based compound like psilocybin. It's actually uses like the GABA system in your brain. And I'm paraphrasing and pulling like I'm definitely no expert other than I'm super stoked to find them and got really interested. But yeah, don't quote <laughs> this as like definite fact. You can go research. No, 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 I get it. A Wikipedia search will you'll probably learn more. But um it, it it has a different effect on the body. So it's more of like a delirium or drunken effect. But then people describe like ecstatic experiences. So I got to interview um, Kevin Feeney, who's a guy who wrote a book called Fly Agaric. That's another name for it. That was all about like histories of medicinal use of this mushroom, mythological references maybe to this mushroom. Um, it was actually one of the mushrooms that R. Gordon Wasson was obsessed with. So anyone who knows psilocybe, I'm assuming most people do, psilocybin mushrooms. R. Gordon Wasson was the banker who back in the 50s went down to Mexico, met Maria Sabina and brought back like tales of the psilocybin mushroom. After that, he dove into like the Amanita mushroom, that Mario mushroom, and did research on ancient Vedic texts. So like the Indian Vedas, the Rig Veda, and found references in there to what he thought was like a preparation method of Amanita muscaria in his book Soma. Uh, which I think is like $300 now for a copy on Amazon. Um, Damn. Yeah, but it's a really cool examination <laughs> of like this potential preparation procedure. Anyway, this guy, Kevin Feeney, writes about this in his book, his new book about Fly Agaric, just about like Gordon Wasson. So this huge influential Myconaut guy, his explorations and like classic shamanic use in Siberia and potentially use in like India, Africa, Mexico all these different places where they might've used that Mario mushroom in some capacity, but then he kind of wraps it up with like, we'll never know. And we might just be seeing it there. Cause we want to think that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I see that. Yeah. That's crazy. It's crazy how widespread, how widespread that and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful mushroom. It's a beautiful too. mushroom. It's like super cool. And, yeah. and there's like this emerging body of knowledge now about like, no, it's not poisonous. There are two chemicals in there, ibutanic acid and muscimol. And basically one of those is responsible for a lot of like the toxic effects and it won't kill you. That's another thing. I mean, maybe if you ate massive quantities, but it gives you like a horrible stomach upset, definitely causes like damage to your innards. Um, but that's largely there's uh, because of ibutanic acid, which now we're learning more and more. There are preparations where you can like lay it out in the sun, that big red cap, you lay it out in the sun. And a lot of that ibutanic acid gets converted over into muscimol which is like the chemical more responsible for like delirium effects, da, da, da. And then there are people who say, oh, if you boil it a few times, you get rid of both and then it just tastes good. So there's like this whole thing around. That's so crazy. So like how you prepare it actually 
makes different chemicals like come to light in the mushroom. Yeah, yeah, it'll like change it's chemicals in there. Or, yeah, and so like it's that. I'm glad you mentioned that mushroom because that's probably like the one people have in their head, and it's still one of the most like polarizing, influential, vivid mushrooms in the world for so many different reasons. Um, so yeah, I, I, if anyone's interested in just learning about that mushroom, that book fly Garrick, including you and Adam probably need to read that. Um, just gets into like yeah, for sure. the history and yeah, it'll make you see it a whole different. So then when you see it in your mom's house, you'd be like, Oh, oh my God, there it is. Let's go take it for a ritual <laughs> preparation. Fucking is. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Then we can we can dance around it in the middle of the apartment complex, and people are like, "What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing?" We're worshiping um, a mushroom. Join dude, our religion. We're worship. Join us. Join us, everybody. Um, dude, I, I had to ask you this before uh, before our, our last three questions because um, you spoke at the Mount Tam Psilocybin Conference, which is like it's basically for people out there. It's a confluence of the minds about psilocybin, and it's super cool that it happens in Mount Tam, which is right in Marin County. Yeah. Um. What was the coolest thing, like the most different thing that you learned there or things that to look for in the future for psilocybin? Oh man, that's a huge question. So I will start all of this with like, I'm not a psilocybin expert or even like super strong proponent. Like I don't grow psilocybin. I don't take them on a regular basis. Not that any of that's wrong, but there are people now doing like cutting edge research of like microdosing. I'm sure everyone's right. hearing about this now. Um, and so there are great resources for like, if you want to dive into what psilocybin does to your body and all of that, definitely, you know, there are great resources for that. One of them being Fungi Academy on Instagram. They do great courses. These guys based out of Guatemala that really kind of influenced my channel to even be a thing. Anyway, all that being said, Mount Tam Psilocybin Conference is awesome. It's us. Daniel Shankin is the founder of that. Uh, he was in Marin County. I'm not sure if he's here anymore. I think he might have moved in the past, like in 2020 with all the craziness. I think him and his family may have moved. Awesome dude. His other name is Sita Ram Das. So anytime someone's got like a Ram Dasi name, I'm like, all right, this guy's mega spiritual maybe. Or, and he is. He, he's a far out guy. I know you heard that interview. That was me interviewing him. And I actually got to come and be kind of like a moderator or host for a speaker, uh, James McConchie who runs Hate Street Shroom Shop in San Francisco. And he's starting to get into this work of like helping people with cultivation and understand not only psilocybin, but like kind of all mushrooms. Anyway, he gave a great talk about like how to grow those mushrooms if you choose to. Obviously, federally illegal. Um, and even though it's decriminalized, quote unquote, in some places, there's still a lot of persecution. So I wouldn't recommend it. So that was like my role in it. But then there were all these amazing speakers talking about like how psilocybin affects our relationship with death, how psilocybin, psilocybin affects our relationship with depression. Uh, I did get to speak with some different people um, related to like the research going on in Johns Hopkins. And so now right. actually some of the things that are looking at the hardest are like how it can help with things like anorexia. Like, whoa, dealing with some psychological issue that heretofore we don't really have an answer to. And the idea that this could like open up your patterns around that disorder or any other mental disorder help you kind of figure it out and then at, as the experience ends it kind of resettles and that like if for people who don't know one of the fundamental theories around taking psilocybin and why it does things we've all heard like oh it rewires your brain or so the, kind of the most popular theory i've heard is called gate theory or what it's going to do is when you take this substance like our day-to-day -day consciousness has like gates up that help us kind of deal with the world and 
basically like we couldn't possibly, our brain couldn't handle all the sensory input from like our eyes, ears, those organs are super sensitive right. and absorb so much information that we kind of put these gates up that shutter out most of it just to like what we need to like, it's called operating. Uh, Your default. day to day. Yeah, default operating. Yeah. Mode. And so the idea is psilocybin comes in and like kind of takes those gates down and like a yeah, lot hundred percent tryptamine based psychedelics like take those gates down and suddenly you're getting all these new inputs and it creates this like really powerful environment where you can have these experiences that in a short time transcend like years of being in that default mode because you're having like all these new inputs For sure. these powerful, and then when it recrystallizes so as it wears off suddenly it's recrystallizing but there might have been like patterns in your brain, neural network patterns that have been even potentially physiologically remapped, and then it kind of settles back in. And so they can like actually change your mind. Now, they haven't done all of the research really to back that up. They're just starting as far as I understand with EEG, where they're actually taking electrical maps of the brain as people imbibe psilocybin. Uh, so figuring that out. So to like try to loop it back from that massive topic, like that conference is a cool place <laughs> where people bring up all of these things. And what I like about it is it kind of stiff arms like the investor side, the entrepreneur side of psychedelics. Not that that's inherently bad, but I think that's the biggest issue we're wrestling with now is we talk about like psilocybin from this mushroom, these powerful effects, you know, people anecdotally, you talk to people like they all have, oh, I felt connected to everything. I felt pure love. Like the anecdotal responses for people are like, holy shit, like this thing is powerful. Right. That's why we're all fascinated by it. But then that being seized on by people with money who are like, oh, if I can make an extract yeah. and like Co patent it. Commodifying it, basically. Exactly. Commodifying the psilocybin to something. Yeah. Basically, like the 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 segmenting and territorializing of any kind of psychedelic substance. Psilocybin is like the most ripe just because it has the most research behind it. So now you know, I'm sure people have heard of a lot of the different institutes involved. I reference Johns Hopkins, which is like the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, that Dr. Roland Griffith probably has the most famous research that kind of got this ball rolling back in the late 90s, kind of revived what Tim Leary and Richard Albert were doing uh, in the 60s. And now there's groups like USONA Institute, which is doing research. And then there's this other company who's kind of on that entrepreneurial spectrum, which is Compass Pathways which I'm sure people have heard about in that psychedelic space. And they were big on like, oh, let's file a bunch of patents. And now some of their patents are starting to come out. And not only are they trying to patent like potentially substances and delivery, but like a process. So the general like Damn. psychedelic medicinal experience pioneered by Johns Hopkins was like lay on a soft couch with a blindfold on. Yeah, right, 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 with headphones on and like a like person there. Exactly, and so now they're saying like part of their patent was like using soft furniture. Like, dude, you can't. That, that is outrageous. You can't patent soft furniture being used in the context of it. So not that that'll necessarily get through, but to me, it kind of lets me know like, oh, that's the danger that we're worried about. Because I think, you know, the ultimate hope for a psychedelic society or society that's more like embedded psychedelics responsibly. It has this potential to like open up creativity and open up a greater sense of connection and all these good things that I think we see when we think of psychedelics. But it's just good to know like there's that specter of, oh no, this could still be like super ego-based, super materialistic, profiteering people that want to jump on this and like kind of pull it away and 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 build fences around it. So where it's like you Yeah. I, I was actually just talking with a guy, Andy Letcher 
over in England who wrote a great book called Shroom. Anyway, it hasn't been released yet, so I won't give too much away, but he just talks about this idea that like, if you make therapeutic use the only viable channel, like, oh, it's medicinal, that has to be given by someone with a white coat, you're going to enter a situation <laughs> where it's super expensive and only certain people can get it. And that's not really the purpose. Like, it has this liberating effect, not only for like middle class and affluent white people, but this should be available to everyone to have those same creative openings and heart openings. So I think the Mount Tam Psilocybin Conference does a great job with like centering the discussion there on like, hey, this isn't all about some guy who's like, I'm an ex-tech CEO who now thought psychedelics were cool and put a bunch of money into it. You know, which is which is fine. Again, that's fine. And probably some people like that are going to be key in like this huge uh, um, distribution or like this huge rollout to our mainstream society. But they, he really wants to get into like all these other uses. And I think the big thing from his interview about the conference was he wanted to make sure people understood that like recreational and spiritual use of psychedelics are totally valid. And we should like fight for that place. Now, again, I'm not even a psychedelic user and I resonate with that. I'm like, yeah, I don't want this to be some like therapeutic only for certain people. So that's what I love about the whole tenor of the conference. He is doing it again this year. Last year he had, you know, Paul Stamets like the big mushroom guy, Mr. Mushroom, Mr. Mushroom everybody knows what I was like, wow, Daniel, like you're, this thing's going to be huge. And so I think, uh, yeah, I was honored to be involved like in any small way, but I think if anyone's interested signing up for that conference, going to talks, you'll get voices out of the mainstream and you'll get a conversation centered around like the kind of highest aspirations of using these substances. That's super, I, that's super interesting. And I actually, I hadn't really thought of that, but I guess like you're right in the fact that like with Johns Hopkins, we're just starting to get back to being able to like clinically research this stuff legally. Yeah. Like we took a long break. We went from acid in the day to like a huge break. And like just recently, we're just getting back to being able to like actually do research on it. But now that we're getting back to doing research on it, now it's like it can get commodified. Now it's like, okay, now we're going to come like pill for that. I never even think, I didn't even think about that. That's interesting. It's it's Um, a big thing. And another part of that conversation is like, whether we're going to get the okay governmentally, like when you talk about decriminalization, legalization of these substances, are we talking about just psilocybin, which is that active chemical component? So it's like psilocybin is in most mushrooms in the highest quantity that gets turned into psilocin in your body. And that psilocin is actually what's causing the psychoactive experience in that case. So mushrooms have like varying degrees of both those chemicals usually. So like, are we just going to let those chemicals be okay, which kind of moves you more toward this like commodification model therapy, or are we going to do research on like the actual imbibing the dried mushroom? Um, and that's, so there's a big yeah, difference and there are people that are big believers right. and like, Hey, there's other stuff in those mushrooms that you need to have like the best, most balanced experience instead of just extracting the right. most potent psychoactive chemical and just bloop, popping that in there. Um, <laughs> yeah. so when you talk about like, uh, Jamaica, there's a lot of work going on in Jamaica right now with psychedelics, they're centering it on like the fruit body. So I think that'll come up in the future with psychedelics is like, are we just extracting compounds, putting those in the little capsule form? Or are we talking about the actual medicine being okay to use of like the full mushroom? It'll be interesting, really interesting to see how that conversation develops. For sure. Dude, thank you so much for coming on. Last three questions. Yes. Um, first one and the book that you mentioned earlier uh, for getting started on mushrooms is super cool. I'll put a link in the show notes, but book recommendation. Book recommendations. I'm going to give be you anything. Can be anything. I'm going to give you my top three 
Radical Mycology by Peter McCoy, a fantastic book, Mycelium Running by Paul Stamets, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. And another one that I really love is called Organic Mushroom Farming and Myco Remediation by Trad Cotter. Uh, The first two are super well-known. Peter McCoy is like a rock star in the mushroom community. His book is awesome. All these guerrilla techniques to grow mushrooms blended with like kind of psycho spirituality. And and then Paul Stamets is kind of the same way. He like has this big grander narrative about mushrooms saving the world and the different experiments you could do. All this information peppered in there. Now, Trad Cotter's book, he runs Mushroom Mountain down in South Carolina, is just based around like how to grow mushrooms like from the scale of you at your house wanting to use an old plastic tub to like starting your oh, own little cool. farm. And he does it very cool. really cool. Yeah. So if I had to pick a top three and not including like guidebooks, if you want to go foraging, obviously that's key. But those are my top three. Just like get your head into mushroom culture, start learning about different ways you can interact with it. Uh, and then Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. And the one I just mentioned, it's Search of Mycotopia by Doug Bierand and uh, Mycophi- Mycophilia by Eugenia Bone. And those are all a little more narrative based, but with a ton of information about like mushroom biology and uh, really good primers to start with. Hell yeah. Dude, question two. If you were, I usually ask spirit animal, but if you were a mushroom, <laughs> if you were a mushroom, what mushroom would you be? If I was a mushroom, what mushroom would you be? Wow, that's that's tough, man. Um, all right, let me think about it just for a second because I just had like a million mushrooms race yeah, through my yeah, head. Yeah. No, thank you, thank you. I'm like, no, am I, am I really embodying that? No, I don't think so. You know, a mushroom spirit that I could hope to embody would be Craterellus cornucopioides. So Craterellus cornucopioides. That is the black trumpet mushroom. They are kind of enigmatic, kind of mysterious. You can't always find them. I also have like long black hair and they're like these stark black, cool mushrooms you find out in nature. Hell yeah, dude. They're like these They're like these black, literal black trumpets coming out of the ground. They're one of my favorites to find, one of my favorites to eat, but they're super hard. They're mushroom hunters who have spent like 30 years trying to find black trumpets and haven't. Um, and, you know, in the Bay Area where we are, they actually do come up. So... Yeah, a little bit of mystery, but like when you find them, they're powerful and awesome. And I like to think that's what I can be. Maybe. Dude, fuck yeah. <laughs> that was good. That was good. That was a good one. I love it. Dude, last la- last question. Um, favorite Bay Area hike? Ooh, favorite Bay Area. Favorite Marin County hike? So I'm going to go actually with like a secret one that I just kind of found that's not really secret. Old Impali. Uh, Old Impali State Park in Novato. So if you're in Marin County, dude, that is, I have never heard of that. That's 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 a cut. I never. That is a cut. It used to be dude. owned by the Grateful Dead, and they would have like Janis Joplin and people out to that as like their big hippie reserve. And now, and there was like tons of history with like Native Americans living there for a long time and having like confrontations with Colin. Like so much history, and they still have a bunch of Miwok villages. Anyone who knows Point Reyes, you kind of have those like Miwok structures out there. They have a bunch of them too at Olimpali. And because no one knows about it, like no one's out there. It's a beautiful hike. Dude, no one knows about that. All in Poly State Park in Novato. That is highly, sick. highly recommended. I almost dude, thank you for giving that one away. Yeah, I know. I'm like, oh, what am I? That's, I, that's I will tough. put the caveat out there. I will put the caveat <laughs> out there. I haven't found like a ton of mushrooms out there, so it's safe. I can give <laughs> yeah. that one away. 
Oh, that's awesome. Dude, I was thinking about like what I would answer that question and I, I feel like I would go cliche. I don't want to be too cliche. I think I would go because when people come to visit and I'm in the Bay Area, yeah. I always want to take them on the Dipsy, although it is very, it is the one. It's beautiful. You know what Can't I mean? Can't go wrong. But it's because you, you got the red, so you get the redwoods, you've got the coast, and then you open up to the beach and then you got, you know, the park side right there for ice cream. It's, so I got my whole like visitor thing. The, the Dipsy you know? is <laughs> solid. And another one that, that we like a lot is Tennessee Valley. Tennessee Valley is awesome. Oh, dude, I um I proposed to my fiance like seven months ago out the beach of Tennessee Valley. What? Wow, nice work. Yeah, All yeah, right, yeah. so that one is even more powerful for you. But yeah, that's good choice. Yeah, good choice. Yeah. I I yeah, thank you very much. I love that one. Even though that one's popular, it's just like because it, it's so quick, you can get down to the beach, and it's just it's so beautiful each time. It's like insane. And if, it's like it gets prettier each and time, it, and you can go like down to the beach or there's like that other path going uphill that's beautiful right some of the sick views hell yeah dude where can people find you you can go to welcome to mushroom hour anything instagram tiktok twitter welcome to mushroom and the podcast you can find on any podcast platform just type in mushroom hour podcast and it'll be there with a beautiful little picture that a friend of mine who lived in san rafael did of like chanterelles in front of mount tam Hell yeah, dude. Guys, check out the Mushroom Hour podcast. It's amazing. Check out the Instagram. Your Instagram is incredible and funny. (laughs) (laughs) So, dude, thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me, man. This was a blast. I appreciate it. Cool, man. Peace, dude. Hey, so that was a lot of very interesting mushroom talk. Um, I learned a lot talking to Darren. Uh, Mycelium is absolutely crazy. And Darren, thanks so much for coming on, man. You can find him at the Mushroom Hour podcast, wherever you get podcasts, or on his Instagram, welcome to Mushroom Hour, all separated by underscores. Um, Give his stuff a look. It's really, really cool. Guys, if you liked the episode, you can also find us on our Instagram at dude underscore nature, or you can find us wherever you get your podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Bye.